You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome again to another episode of the Revision Path Podcast. We've got a great interview for you today, but first let's talk about the companies that are helping to make this all possible. With great customer support, dozens of templates, and helpful resource guides, MailChimp is your one-stop shop for email marketing for your small business. And best of all, it's free to sign up. Just visit MailChimp.com today and transform your email marketing. Audible has over 150,000 audiobooks in their library, and you can listen to them on your computer, on your mobile device, or on a tablet device. Head to audibletrial.com forward slash revision path and get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. You're sure to find something that you'll like. This week, I'm listening to a Walter Mosley classic, When the Thrill is Gone, uh, Leonid McGill. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash revision path for your free trial and tell us what you're listening to. Now, our fundraising drive is still going on, and we're just $176 away from our July goal. And a lot of you have asked me, what exactly does a free podcast need sponsorship for? And that's a very valid question. Uh, While we're able to offer the podcast for free, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes in order to make that happen. Uh, We have to find people that are willing to be interviewed, which is harder than you might think. Uh, We have to schedule times for them to talk, record the interview, sometimes re-record the interview because of technical difficulties, um, edit and mix the interview down to a podcast, upload it, and then publicize it every week. Now, both Saida and I have our own businesses that we do. So we've dedicated ourselves to Revision Path on top of the work that we are already providing for our clients. And your donations help us to pay for a lot of things with Revision Path, for secure web hosting, to purchase better recording equipment, hire writers to create original content for the site, and for RJ, our audio editor, who is amazing. Plus, we've got plans to expand Revision Path with merchandise, events, interviews on location, conferences, a whole lot more. The podcast is currently heard in over three dozen countries, so I know we've got a big reach. Now, we might not be in the tens of thousands of downloads or episode plays or on the top of the iTunes chart, but we have something that those podcasts don't, and that's your support. Now, we're all working hard here behind the scenes to provide you with these interviews that you enjoy. So if any of the stories that you've heard have motivated or inspired you, have made you think, have made you laugh, even made you angry then please donate to help keep Revision Path going so we can continue our mission. We are the only podcast, the only one, that exclusively showcases black web designers, graphic designers, and web developers. I can't stress that enough. The only one. Don't let it die out. Support independent media, because if our own community won't support us, then who will? Visit tugboatyards.com forward slash page forward slash Revision Path and donate today. Drop a tip in our tip jar or sponsor an upcoming episode for just $20. Do it today. All right, now let's get on with this week's interview. I had the immense pleasure of talking with John Daniel, an independent creative director in London, England. Here we go. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name's John Daniel. I'm an independent creative director. What does that mean exactly? I guess I'm very much into ideas. I'm classically trained as a graphic designer, and then I've worked in the sort of fields of advertising as an art director, in the classic art director copywriter role for many years. I've also had my own companies, two companies, one called um, Headland when I started out, just leaving college, which was a creative partnership, again, mainly doing advertising and graphic design and branding for people, and then also Ebb and Flow, more latterly and that started in 2004 and we were a boutique branding company working on a host of different branding projects internationally. So you say that you're um, classically trained, where did you study at? Um, I studied at Richmond upon Thames Tertiary College so that's where I did my um, general art and design course and then I graduated onto the higher national diploma in graphic design course but to be honest i didn't i didn't stay the course you know I, I got quite frustrated on the course and ended up leaving about a month towards the end much to the consternation of my 
sort of teachers and um, also my my mum <laughs> at the time. Why did you decide to leave? Well, I was quite strong-headed and I was quite disillusioned at the time when I started on that course, partly because, as I've said before, I'm an ideas person and we're talking about the mid 80s so at that time for me certainly in europe or in in you know in london you know where i was based and where i was you know brought up and where i was training everybody on the course seemed to kind of be into copying ideas and and copying styles so everything was about style over kind of substance a lot of the uh design and advertising that I was influenced by was coming from the 60s, the 50s and 60s, where I just saw genuine ideas that were then executed in a particularly strong and powerful and unique way. What was happening for me when I was at college was often we'd be given briefs and whatever was the vogue at that time, that's almost how the students would execute their, you know, their projects. They do it in spots because spots were in or they do it in ripped paper because ripped paper was in. Whereas I'd spend my time kind of trying to come up with the actual concept first and foremost and a unique concept and then think, oh, OK, well, now how will I execute that? So um, I actually found midway on the course that my head was more suited at that particular time to advertising whereby you focus entirely on the concept. But the problem with advertising for me at that particular time was a lot of it was very poorly executed or designed. So I actually ended up focusing on wanting to go into advertising and because I felt it was better suited for, for how I felt about the creative industry at that time. It's interesting that you mentioned that you sort of felt like the work that you were doing was was almost copying instead of original stuff. There's a, an essay by Sylvia Harris, uh, who's a great graphic designer. She passed on, but she did this uh, essay called Searching for a Black Aesthetic in American Graphic Design Education. Yeah. And in part of that, she talks about sort of, you know, how black designers today, well, I guess, you know, we'll say within the past 30, 40 years, mm -hmm. black designers and students are kind of trapped in this strategy of imitation rather than innovation. Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't think that's just true of black designers. You see, I think that's true of a lot of designers and most designers, you um, know. So everything's based on everything else or is inspired at least by certain things. But I guess what you do is you try and search inside yourself to try and a new way, a new way of expressing it. So sometimes it can be an old idea, but you just want to find a new way of expressing it or that you can do it in your own particular style. And But what I don't like is a kind of a slow slavish copying of something or in other words mm -hmm. so like you said i mean i guess we've seen it with it because of the hip-hop generation and sampling etc you know and things like that where essentially you know people are taking a piece of the culture but then if they make something fresh out of it or something new out of it i don't have a problem with that per se i think it's about if you can kind of remix it in a certain way then that's fine and it says something new to this audience right now if you see what i mean but when it's just you're just blindly taking you know looking at a brief and applying the style of what you know of something else to it that's when it's a problem because i think it's blindly doing it you're going oh this is in fashion and i'll just make it applicable to this brief that only mm -hmm. works if intellectually the style you're applying is relevant to the thing that you're selling just what I mean so i think that that the problem i had being in a design college at that time was that one, the reason I left was because I recognised that in my heart I'm a graphic designer. In my heart, I, I could have done poster design all day. But what I felt was that at my time right then when I was training, that the sort of things I was interested in weren't really you know, what people were necessarily interested in. And also design at that time, I felt, wasn't, didn't have a lot of ideas going on. It was style over, over substance. Whereas mm -hmm. advertising, that's all you do. You focus 100% as a creative on the idea. And then you can bring the right people in to execute it. I was really attracted to that, I, and I still am in many ways. I, I like the, to be able to think about a concept, and then if I'm not the right person to execute that concept, then I'll find the right people to do it for me. And now you mentioned that after you, you left design school, then you sort of started 
this design partnership called Headland. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I had a I had a, a creative partnership, and again, it's because we were trying to, myself and my partner at that time. We were trying to get into ad agencies, and I mean, anyone who knows what it's like to try and get into an advertising agency, it's a very difficult thing to do. You know, there it was at the time. It was unpaid. You know, you basically can spend months and months taking your portfolio around to creative directors and different agencies and you might if you're lucky get a placement and again if you're lucky you might stay one week or two weeks or maybe even longer if you start getting work through but again all of this will be often unpaid so at the time you know we basically there was a lot of things that the government in London were doing to encourage entrepreneurialism so they started up funds that where you could, you know, become the recipient of a, a grant to sort of start your business, etc. So, so that's what we did. We just thought, well, actually, why don't we just start our own business? So, so we did that, and we lasted about four years before a recession, kind of a big recession, took us out in the early nineties. And then you got your your first professional design gig after that. Yeah, or well, first, Bob. It was some time after that, so another two years really of of looking. I mean, what happened was I was at a crossroads because I was thinking, mm-hmm. shall I? You know, okay, we've had our own, had our own business. You know, it's just gone down the pan. I was thinking a lot about design and a lot about the sort of ideas that I would love to do, particularly around promoting my own identity as a designer of african caribbean heritage so i had a lot of ideas in me that i'd love to explore and i the soul searching i did was really to think about what do i want to do now do i want to try and get into advertising or do i want to follow my heart and try and maybe explore some of these ideas that i'm having politically and you know around my kind of identity and i figured that i wasn't really going to be able to make money doing you know doing that so i thought let's give it one more last chance to get into advertising so my my partner at the time also did the same thing he was very into photography but i guess we both decided that these were personal things to us so let's try and see if we can get into advertising it took about another two years but we finally got into a an ad agency and then you know our professional you know career started so once you got started with that, I guess, you know, with this first professional gig, you're working in advertising. What did you learn from that? I'll tell you, I mean, it's funny, actually. That one of the very first jobs that I had, it was for IBM, and it was for a the IBM AS400. And we worked at the time. It, basically, IBM was one of those accounts that nobody really wanted to work on. You know, I don't know if you, how much you, you know about IBM, the company, and how they they used to kind of operate their advertising. But you know, they were known as the Big Blue, this very corporate, you know, yeah. um, company. You know, that would, there would be you talk of logo police, if you see. It. I mean, in terms mm-hmm. of policing the size of a logo that was on their, um, you know, on their adverts. So they had this pres- very prescriptive way of doing their advertising. This was one of our first projects, and we were really fortunate to work with a very innovative, visionary client. The client was called Malcolm Haynes, and um, he had a particularly profitable division of IBM called the AS400, which was a a computing system designed for business. So um, what was excellent about him was he gave us license to break all the rules. So as a first project in in uh, in advertising you know we were actually able to do some very powerful award-winning work and because as a result of that a lot of people then in the agency creative suddenly wanted to start working on ibm briefs again but it was um so you know i had a very kind of a um, lucky start if you'd like you, you know in the in the industry because we worked on a project that nobody wanted but just happened to be married to you know a client who was very imminent and wanted to break the rules and that combination you know you're 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 kind of bound to do some good work yeah i remember i remember big blue i know that i think paul Rand did the logo for for ibm yeah yeah so you really were able to sort of get in on the ground floor and uh and work with that let's talk about kind of what you're doing now as an independent creative director so we have a lot of entrepreneurs out there that listen to the podcast Mm -hmm. how do you go about you know marketing your work and What's sort of the difference between now being sort of like a working freelancer, if that's a good way to put it, yeah. towards versus 
the agency work that you've done? I think, I mean, well, just to sort of fill in the blanks, I guess, as well. So after I had about 10, 12 years in advertising, I then also... The last agency I worked at was Leah Burnett around 2004. So then around 2004, early 2005, set up another company, Ebb and Flow, which was a boutique branding company. And there, in a way, we were starting to, or certainly I was thinking that I wanted to do more of my own projects, projects that kind of fulfilled me, if you see. The thing is, I've always done that. So throughout my career, you know, right from the start, like I say, as a somebody in college, right the way through to, you know, to now, whether I've been working 24-7 in an agency, I've always maintained other projects that are personal to me that I do because I think it's a good balance to have you know obviously you're going to do jobs that you know essentially for money but you know it's great to do some jobs that kind of are for love that and I find that that combination pays dividends because the other they feed off each other in many ways creatively in more more often than not so now after ebb and flow again period of you know obviously the big global recession etc so unfortunately we, we wound the company down you know i had a point of reflection and that crossroads that i was talking about when i um, was thinking what shall i do when i wanted to do maybe projects that were more about reflecting me and as, as a, a creative of african caribbean heritage i decided that's what i'm going to do and it all came about quite by accident i've got a collection of stamps that are so it's about four or five hundred stamps of African diaspora cultural heroes and heroines. And mm-hmm. I, f- I came across this collection and I just thought I should do something with this. And it was in the period when I'm, you know, we were winding down the company, I'm thinking, what's my next move going to be? I knew that I didn't want to go and work in an agency. I knew I didn't want to go and work for somebody else, if you see what I mean. But I just thought, what do I want to do? And I came across this collection and I thought, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do, you know, maybe put an exhibition together based around this. So I managed to actually have them published in a, a monograph by Creative Review magazine. And then that led on to an exhibition with Stanley Gibbons, which is like the leading authority on stamps. They've got a flagship store on, on the Strand in London. And that then, led, so I, I did, subsequently did another exhibition with um, Stanley Gibbons, which also then I started thinking about a book. So, you know, I've been in conversation with Thames and Hudson about doing a book on the art and design of stamps. And so it led to a lot of different things. In a way, what I felt I took into this new realm now where I'm although I'm still working for clients here and there I do the odd kind of projects you know branding projects etc now and advertising I'm trying to push it more to my own do my own push my own intellectual property and my own ideas and in a way I'm taking all of the skills that I feel I acquired working in corporate advertising and commercial advertising and design over sort of 25 years knowing how to pitch your ideas, knowing how to talk to boardroom-level decision-makers, I've taken that now to try and further my own ideas. So, you know, in a way, I create pitches around my own ideas and I take them to companies or organisations that I think can help facilitate the idea that I'm working on at any particular time. That's really good that you've got that. I almost want to say you've figured out how to bridge that gap between not just having the idea but also being able to go to someone or a company or something that's able to really execute that and put it out into the world which i think if your problem for a lot of creative people they have a lot of ideas and it's like oh well they get hamstrung trying to figure out well how do i make this happen yeah yeah i think it's i mean part of it as well is number one there's there's confidence that has to has to come through it's also doing your homework do you see what I mean so I'm not saying I'm successful all the time but the important thing is that you need to the first thing I do is number one just call up the company in question that I'm looking to you know talk to so let's just you know if I go back to Stanley Gibbons I basically contacted their marketing director and I said are you open to receiving proposals for ideas Mm -hmm. and she said yes so at least 
you've established one phone call, you've established a contact, somebody to speak to, and you've established that they are open to receiving something. So therefore, you're not wasting your time and you're not wasting theirs either. So, you know, that's the first thing is just qualification. You know, make sure that whoever you're approaching is open to receive what, you know, what you want to send them. And then... The second thing is is having the skills to be able to create a proposal that they can see. So in other words, and what I mean by that is when I design a lot of my proposals, I will put the, uh, the ideas within the context of the environment that I want them to live in. So for example, if, if I sh- I'm showing them an exhibition and I'm saying that there's going to be advertising of this exhibition, I'll design the poster for the exhibition. I'll just take that poster, I'll put it on you know, a bus shelter poster, if that's what I intend. And so they get a sense of, they're not just seeing the concept. More often than not, what I try to give them is near as damn it, without their involvement, my fully-fledged vision of the concept and nine times out of ten that's proved quite successful for me in terms of with stanley gibbons they pretty much you know they supported the exhibition they supported paying for my time you know to put the whole exhibition together we put a little film together as well and not they pretty much didn't change anything that i had showed them in my proposal that so you know i'd locked it down to some extent that tightly with using their own branding if you see what I mean you know I was able to kind of show them how it worked within the context of their own brand so I took their logo off their site or I created the advert that would go on their site and I took the screenshot dropped it in where it should go etc so in that sense you're showing them exactly how it will look and you know they can either go wow that fits with our brand or it doesn't and if they think it does fit with their brand then you've already increased your opportunity of of selling that piece of work so it sounds like you do a lot of executing the vision visually as opposed to you know sort of writing out a lot of things oh, definitely. Is, that, is that a good way to put it yeah definitely i mean i do both so i will but the thing is i'm trying you know i try to make it more you know 75% visual 25% text so yeah the text is there just to kind of fill in the gaps or try and exaggerate or exemplify a point that I'm trying to make but the bottom line is the visual should do half the talk and they should just go yes we want to support this because we can see how well it fits with our brand it's a great concept or it's a great idea you did a talk uh, at Creative Mornings London earlier this year talking about your, your latest exhibit, Afro Superhero. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, again, Afro Superhero is based on the other collection, main collection I've got, which is a collection of black action figures and comics and various sort of other elements like a few board games etc so these are a lot of them come from the states they are like 1960s 1970s i'm particularly interested in the 70s which was the 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 period of my my youth so that whole kind of i was born in 1966 so that whole emergence out of the civil rights era in the sort of 60s into the what was a very dynamic explosion of kind of black consciousness and afrocentric consciousness into the 70s i mean literally where that you know you get the afro you get the dashiki etc you get you know the you know afro picking the hair and all the rest of it that mm-hmm. was you know that period of time has always been a really exciting time for me and i wasn't quite old enough to really live it so in other words i wasn't a teenager in the 70s i was just a bit too young but i was inspired by my older brother who lived with us who was a teenager at the time and did kind of have the afro and the flared jeans and all the rest of it and he had come from the caribbean he was he was brought up in grenada for much of his um, early childhood and then came to live with us back in london when he was about 15 16 so um if you can imagine the kind of 
this older brother turning up who is, you know, 10 years older than me with an afro and just, you know, his really cool and his whole swagger. It had a very profound effect on me. And Mm -hmm. um, basically I took all of that and and turned it into an exhibition called Afro Superhero, which was at the V&A Museum of Childhood in London. Um, It started last year in September and it went through to this year, um, ended in February 2014. So I'm, I'm now looking to take that show across the uk and then eventually i'd love to get it to the states as well and beyond you know the 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 diaspora africa the caribbean etc etc yeah i think something like that would go over really well in the states because i know that here there's this really there's this really strong kind of undercurrent of of like black comic book creators yes that span a large a large age range so i think something like that would be would be good if you decide to bring it to the states you should talk to the people at the national black arts festival oh, uh, which, is, which is actually here in atlanta or well, it's headquartered here in atlanta but if you can reach out to them i think they might be able to help because i know they do a lot of of sourcing of, of i guess material and and programming and things yeah they try to pull things from other countries so I think the fact that you've already sort of got like a packaged yeah. exhibit might that might help. So if you if you think about it, you should reach out to them. But I think that would be really good to see here. I mean, I'm a big sort of black comic book nerd, <laughs> so I have a really keen interest in just sort of you know superheroes in general, but particularly black superheroes. Yes. So. Who's your favorite black superhero? Do you have one? I think it's it's probably Black Lightning, actually. Okay. In terms of comic books, it would be Black Lightning. But again, you see, I'm not necessarily a big comic book. I'm not a geek in that way. Um, Okay. I've I've come at all the things I've come at because I've got a real love of black history. So mm-hmm. everything the really that I've that I've got in terms of the stamps, it's really about history. And that's that's what I'm into. So you'll find, you know, some of the greatest superheroes for me are real life people from history, like, you know, Chevalier de Saint George or Toulon, you know, Toussaint Louverture, leader of the Haitian Revolution, etc. That you know, so that, that's what I'm inspired by. I love the Black Panthers. I love you know, that era. Malcolm X, obviously, Martin Luther King. You know, these are all real life superheroes for me. You know, truth mm-hmm. is stranger than fiction. You know. Uh, very much a believer in those sort of things and I think there's loads of um, old stories that are begging to be given a fresh action movie take just so I mean that would make them very very dynamic blockbuster movies I've believed that for years so um, that's what I'd love to see you know I'd love to see the Tucson Louverture movie but done in a contemporary way with whoever you know Idris Elba <laughs> or whoever it might be in the lead role, you know. So I think uh, that these are the, the movies that I think would be fantastic. I know that for a while there was there's sort of been these inklings about there being actually a Toussaint Louverture film. Danny Glover yeah, has had the development right. for a while now. I don't know where it is. I don't know if it's sort of stuck in development hell, but I would love to see something like that too. I think that would be really good. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Totally agree. So, hey, let's hope that, you know, it gets these things get made one day. Yeah. One person that I interviewed, this was back in July of last year, is Alex Pierce. And Alex Pierce has this website called Black in History. Oh, yeah. And so I think it's every, I forget how often he updates it, maybe every month, maybe more than that. But he features like a different, you know, black person in history. So it might be Thurgood Marshall. It might be. Oh, right, um, Yeah. Nat King Cole, while we're sort of on this black comic book vein, I think Dwayne McDuffie was one of them. Yeah. So he had a, a brief interview in Net Magazine. I, I don't know if it was this issue or the last issue. Yeah. Issue 255, where he did sort of a kind of a similar thing. And it's on the web where he basically just lists out the history of these people so people know who they are. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Have you, have you heard of, of Milestone Media? I haven't, no. Again, they're based in the States. Yeah, okay, so this is my black comic book nerd part coming out. So <laughs> so Milestone Media was created in the like early 90s, and it was an offshoot of DC, DC Comics. It was a distribution deal with them. Yeah. And they put together sort of this coalition of, of black artists and writers. 
uh, Dwayne McDuffie was kind of the head guy. Yeah. Dennis Cowan, a couple of other people. Yeah. I think Christopher Priest was in it, uh, like, very briefly. And so they put out a number of different titles. I think the one that most people probably know of is Static or, or Static Shop. Okay. Because he had sort of, he had a kid's cartoon, I think, in the, like, 2000s or so, but some of those characters are now sort of making their way into the mainstream DC iconography hardware, for example, Static. I want to say there were probably some other people, but I don't really remember. But there's a a talk of it sort of trying to make a resurgence. Yep. I'm not sure if that's going to happen only because I feel like the whole DC universe is always in so much flux. Um, Like they did that whole New 52 thing and now they're not doing it. I don't know. But... (laughs) But here in the States, I know there's, a lot, there's kind of this really big thing about the perception of what African-Americans are in comics. So you have a lot of independent comic creators yeah. that kind of build their own thing and do their own thing. So, Fantastic. Um, yeah. So sort of piggybacking off of what you said about the Afro superhero exhibit and how your your brother was kind of someone that you looked up to, you kind of have this very interesting confluence of of West Indian influence as well as British influence and also African-American influence because you talked about some time that you spent here in the States when you were a kid. Definitely, yeah. How do all of those influences kind of shape your work? (laughs) Um, Wow, how do they shape my work? I mean, they are. They absolutely do shape shape the work that I do. And um, I guess I kind of try to include that influence in recognizing people you know, from across the the whole diaspora. I suppose Afro Superhero, if I was going to say what project is really about me and my life, that's really what Afro Superhero is about. It's influenced by my kind of ser- own search for identity as a, a black kid growing up in, in England. You know, where at that time, I never felt part of, of British society. And it was it was easy to have that feeling because basically, you know, you had a lot of racism, you had skinhead culture, you had all these different things that were kind of marking you out as as kind of different, if you see what I mean. But uh-huh. uh, the same, and and also, I was very fortunate to go to both Barbados and Grenada at a very young age. My parents took us back to the West Indies when I mean, the first time I went was when I was two or two and a half and it's my earliest memory is being in Barbados and, and you know and, and being in that environment I, I still remember it very vividly even though I was only two two and a half at the time and so and also on my dad's side of the family in particular they had big family reunions where the family from the from Barbados had emigrated to the US so um, and so again that was a very mind-blowing influential inspirational time for me when i went to the states when i was the first time i went was when i was an early teen i was about 13 or 14 you know to go over there and see well number one to meet all these cousins and third cousins and tenth cousins and i mean literally we would have taken over a hotel there'd be about 200 people all related all staying in this hotel, you know, over the course of a week or so, you know, which is, so that was a, it's a real privilege to have been able to experience that. But the other side is then coming where we didn't really have the same level of black programming that you have in the States. So, you know, coming over and seeing sitcoms like the Jeffersons and, and, you know, the, Jackson 5 cartoons and the kind of the whole notion of what was going on in the States in a more evolved sense than we had in the UK was again hugely inspirational um, to me I've also done a lot of research into my family history and so but I've also done ancestral DNA tests so I know that on my father's side my DNA comes from Mahalume in Swaziland and on my mother's side it comes from Tanzania um, Lake Iyasi and so again these are places that I've got to I've got to visit I've got to go to at some point and and they're places that are on my map to take the Afro superhero show to so you know my journey now 
is very much about promoting the Afro superhero show because I see it as me find is me kind of pulling all the strands of my kind of DNA and heritage together and and I think it's a very true diaspora story because it's it involves the UK it involves America it involves Africa it involves the Caribbean so I think there's you know there's something very powerful there I'm, I'm hoping to make a, a documentary about the whole thing as well that would be really good to see I know that you know here in the in the US there's always or at least I think now it's starting to come up this resurgence of for black people sort of wanting to know where yeah. they've come from, particularly in Africa. For me, I've tracked it down to Togo slash Benin. Oh, fantastic. It's, it's right in those two in those two countries. It's one yeah. of the two. I'm not sure which. I still have to I have to get the whole like African ancestry DNA thing. But it's so interesting because I know that those are both French speaking countries. Yeah. And I grew up speaking French, like studying and speaking it from maybe second grade all through college wow and and it was always easy for me to pick up and i didn't know why it was so easy for me to pick up wow I don't know if that's like some <laughs> like some ancestral nod. Yeah. yeah right like it's just in my <laughs> dna like i would i would know that what are some of those differences i guess you know now that you're older what are the differences that you see between african-american culture and black British culture. I mean, I'll be honest. I don't think there's a there's a lot. I think of difference. It's it's. I think it all boils down to attitude. And again, that attitude could be not exclusively racial. So what I mean by that is just some of my cousins and the way that I feel Americans look at business and look at the world. But I think it's it's the same in terms of the whole sector. Americans have this real notion of how to kind of take something and commoditize it and and roll it out and make it very very they they boil it down very very simply i don't think mm-hmm. we do the same thing in the uk you know at all i think our attitude to business is entirely different it's getting better it's getting more influenced but we, there's just a different attitude i remember a cousin coming over one time he was in music you know he was a producer and he was talking about hip-hop, and he was saying, I just want 1%. That's all I want. I want 1% of the, of the market. It's the fact that he had boiled it down to me in that way, that he just went, mm-hmm. look, I just, look, I'm not being greedy. I just want 1%. It's a X amount, da-da-da-da, trillion-dollar business, and if I could just get mm-hmm. 1% of it, then... And so his attitude was different if you see what I mean to how maybe I might have approached thinking about starting a business and thinking about you know trying to make headway I think often in the UK they think a lot smaller the internet has opened obviously has opened the, the world up so I think you can think bigger but I think that British people tend to be that much more reserved that much more inhibited about lots of different things whereas I think there are, I mean, there are definitely instances where American people, I think, don't have a global view. But in terms of business, they, I think they seem to have a pretty, pretty big vision of things. They just almost expect it to kind of go global mm-hmm. from day one, if you see what I mean. You know, I you. whereas I think we're very domestic over here and there are nuances I guess to a lot of the things that you'll find in the UK and like I say these are all positive I'm not kind of just putting one against the other and saying it's better or not I'm just because these are often why you get something slightly different coming out of the UK I think that there is a genuine innovation over here and a gen- what it, what comes out because of this fusion of um a very strong West Indian or African kind of culture mixed with a British sensibility becomes very, very, you know, becomes quite different if you see it. And it took a while for that to happen because, again, we were so influenced by American imports. So if I take music, for example, it took a while for a black British sound in music to emerge you know, like a Loose Ends or a Light of the World or, you know, some of these bands, if you see what I mean, that have subsequently mm-hmm. made it. And obviously to in later, you know, you're, you know, coming from the grime scene and your Dizzy Rascals and et cetera, et cetera. It took a while for a unique British sound, British sounds to evolve. Prior to that, it was 
essentially we were a kind of black community based in the UK, but our tastes were imported. So in other words, we were very much influenced by all the American imports. So everything that we, we would consume was often based on American imports of soul and R&B and funk music or reggae and dub plates, etc., coming from the, you know, the Caribbean and Jamaica. So it took a while for then a homegrown sound and voice to emerge, you know, and obviously that did happen, you know, in the kind of late, in the early 80s, I think it started to happen and then obviously Soul to Soul and all these other things that have kind of come out since that have a very distinct British, you know, sound. Right. But still I've... always pays homage to the diaspora. It's still always a, a, a hybrid of, you know, of these things. For me, my first... Well, I think one of my first sort of, I guess, exposures to, you know, kind of what, what would be considered like black British culture is kind of, it was through music, like what you mentioned, like you said, soul to soul, yeah. loose ends. And really, even if I went back further, like maybe uh, average white band. Yeah. Um, and I know here in the States, a lot of people love Sade. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. and you know, yeah. Sade or Simply Red or something. So for me, it was through music. And like I mentioned kind of before we started recording, Jamiroquai is one of my like all-time favorite favorite band yeah yeah fantastic um, and for me also kind of my first visual look into what black british culture was and i don't even know if you could say it's black british culture but it was the show uh, chef with lenny henry oh really yeah <laughs> uh, the local <laughs> the local pbs affiliate would show i guess older episodes i don't even know if it was necessarily that older because i think it was right around the time it was airing but it was Certainly in syndication, they would show episodes of Chef. So I, you know, knew all about Gareth and Janice. And yeah, yeah. And Everton. Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> now, now we both kind of share this this passion, you know, for showcasing black designers and their work, like you said, across the diaspora. Talk to us about Visual Intellectual and, and the work that you do with Design Week. Okay, so it started... Well, yeah, over a year ago. So I started it in February 2013. And I pitched it again. It was another idea that I had in my head that I always wanted to do. And I pitched it to Design Week and they, they loved it. So, and, and it fitted very much, I think, with where Design Week were going at the time. So Design Week in the UK is probably the leading design-focused publication they were on the newsstand as mm-hmm. well and then what happened obviously competition and various sort you know things they got rid of the newsstand copy and went 100% digital online now what that did to their audience in a way was take it from what was a probably 80 90% uk audience to what is now probably more like i think it's 60% global you know, outside the UK, 40% UK, their audience now. So I came to them with this idea about one called Four Corners, which would focus on, I guess, politically what I wanted to achieve, which was putting the focus on creatives from the diaspora of black creatives around the world. And then, but also it fitted with their remit of obviously reaching out to a, a wider audience as well. So it's been going now for, you know, like I said, over a year and a half, and um, and it's proving really successful. I mean, it's successful enough to, in the fact that now we're looking to do a series of real talks, inviting some of the speakers that I, the people that I've interviewed, over to the UK to actually put on a you know a real event rather than a virtual one. That would be awesome. It's so funny because I started. Revision Path in February of 2013. So Whoa. Kind of, you know, yeah, kind of right in that same vein. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and you interviewed Maurice Woods, who was someone that, that I interviewed as well. And one of the people that you interviewed, Everton Wright, again, sort of hearkening back to Jamiroquai. He's the guy that designed the famous Buffalo Man logo. He did their first two their first two CDs, Return of the Space Cowboy and Emergency on Planet Earth. So Fantastic. That is so, like... It's, it's a kinship. I like that. So let's shift kind of a little bit from talking about design so much. Let's talk about, you know, kind of you as a person. Where do you see yourself in the next, like, five years or so? Cool. So 
I mean, in an ideal world, I'd love to make this this shift where I am doing, I'd say, 95, if not 100% of my work is around Afro superhero and the kind of facilitation of my own projects and ideas. At the moment, I still do some projects you know on commission etc and you know for projects for different companies you know be them large companies or individual individuals that I work with as well but I'd love to sort of see that you know whereby most of my I'm managing to maintain a living on pushing a lot of my own projects and I, I also just want to kind of further I want to help be responsible for I guess you know but giving people a better appreciation of the talent that is within our community and just inspiring people to kind of do do great work and you know turn and especially turn you know, when we talk about brands we talk about branding you know I, there's these questions I always have that I, and I, I'm almost shocked that I that we still have to have them in a way so for example we have so many hairdressers in our community Mm-hmm. Why isn't there a global black L'Oreal or <laughs> you know make hair or makeup brand? We dominate athletics, but why isn't there an African or Caribbean owned athletics brand? So these are the sort of yeah. things that I kind of feel I want to raise. I want us to be to raise our game if you see it I mean on on all levels if you see it I mean and it's not to it's right. not to be divisive about it at all but you know it's it's just about the fact that we do need to create kind of power bases that will therefore employ people in the community because unfortunately we do, we don't live in a in an equal society and if i was a woman i'd be saying the same thing just mm-hmm. i mean if i was a if i was female i'd be saying why aren't there more female owned makeup brands just I mean why aren't there, right. you know etc cetera, etc cetera. so i just sort of think that's what i want to see happen i want to see us executing our thoughts and ideas in in a way that is equitable with what is out there or at the highest level that's what i want to see and that's what i try to do you know with with my own work i try to kind of make it make sure that it stacks up as a concept and and is appealing to everybody so i'm not equally just then trying to sell it to to myself or you know but i want to take what i i do do it well and therefore share it with everybody if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. that's the point the point is you know i'm saying why isn't there a black owned athletics brand because i'm sure everybody would still buy those you know if you saying boat oh owned an athletics brand wouldn't everybody around the world buy it yeah, you know, I think so. So, so why doesn't that exist? Why is it that it's still this white male power structure that we kind of that that is still only existing in the world around commerce? If you see what I mean. So, I just want to see, you know, I want to see a more equal playing, you know, playing field out there. And I think that for the you know the African diaspora we've got the skills there's no doubt there is a, a renaissance that is happening all eyes are on africa as you know the as an emerging continent if you see what i mean you know the kind of western world is you know and also south america and the, and china so these are the emerging economies and because of that we have to have a different point of view so so we have to have a more global focus we have to be able to have a workforce that reflects that diversity so and that's what i want to see happen now you have two boys of your own i do yeah do they sort of share your same creative interests <laughs> not entirely not entirely <laughs> i think they're both creative my youngest son is 14 and he's autistic my eldest son is 18 he's just finishing school now and he's um he's very very um very into athletics very into sport fitness and so i think he'll probably be going into that area but i still you know i still see them as creative so in other words i think creativity exists in all areas if you see what i mean so if you're creative in finance then i think it makes you a better 
finance you know financial person if you're creative in business it makes you a better business person so i see creativity affecting all areas so but with my children you know i just want them to be happy they don't have to follow in the oh i say for family footsteps it isn't really because none of the none of my family before me were in the creative industry but funny enough both myself and my wife are designers so okay. um, so yeah, I guess. But neither of the boys look like they're going to follow in our footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> Who has offered you the most useful career advice? Wow. Wow, you really caught me there, Morris. <laughs> I'm gonna, <laughs> uh, I've got to really think about that. I've got to really, really think about that because I can't – oh, it's difficult to say. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of what's the most important thing that I've learned. I can't answer that actually. I just okay. really can't because I can't think the- of the one <laughs> the one person. I think there've been many people who have helped me on my journey. You know, either directly or indirectly. Have you had a lot of mentors? I've never really had a mentor as such. You know, but I feel that I've had people that I maybe thought of in that way, even though they weren't necessarily officially my mentor if you see what I mean so the yeah. people that I would look to that I would think about okay that's kind of what I'd like to do do you see what I mean and I really like how you so there's people like Alan Fletcher you know Alan Fletcher and Pentagram just the way I mean number one he's an incredibly he was because he passed away you know a few years ago but I actually had the I was I worked with him on a, a campaign that I did in advertising. He he did the illustration, but I mean the way he worked, I really admired. I mean his life was his work in a way, so I like that kind of when it's all consuming because in a way that's how I approach design. Pretty much, you know, creativity ideas. I, I'm thinking them twenty four seven. I'm you know it's it's just what I do. I live it. You know, so there's no line really between my sort of life and my work in in many respects and that's what i liked about the example that he sort of set you know as well in in his work but yeah i mean it's you know it's difficult because there's so many people many people who like say indirectly have kind of contributed or just in the little projects that i've had i've had like milestone projects where i went oh wow that really made me think a completely different way and took me in a whole new direction if you see what I mean in terms of how I thought about creativity or thought about projects so I've I've had those you know those moments as well are you where you wanted to be at this stage in your life yeah in a strange way I'm a, I might even be a little bit ahead of where okay be. I mean because when we we wound the business down in 2011 you know I was kind of at a, at a low point but you know in terms of thinking about what I wanted to do financially I wasn't in a very good situation etc as well and what happens when I kind of turned that corner and suddenly started thinking about my collections and then where I wanted to get to in terms of where I am now I've definitely got there I definitely feel that you know I'm gaining pace and I suppose earning the sort of notoriety around what I do and what I believe in now you know I feel I've got there and people are looking at me in the I feel in the way that I'd love them to see me if you see I mean as a creative I think it's, it's interesting um there's that old adage and this is one of the reasons why I knew that I didn't want when we wound down the company I knew I didn't want to go and work for somebody or go back into an an ad agency or a design company so the old adage is that advertising is a young man's game now I don't believe that but the problem is when you get to a certain age in advertising and you're still working and you're working as a creative and you you maybe are not a either a creative director or a business owner i think that advertising it treats you like an infant in a way so when you've worked in a mainstream advertising agency you know you you are very cosseted 
you know you you kind of the producers and all the people around you essentially the creatives are in the playpen <laughs> and that they are you just go and create and then they, they take care of everything else if you see them around you so it's a very indulgent atmosphere i mean whether it still is to this day it might remains to be seen but ultimately i think Therefore, when you get to a certain age in advertising, you don't want to feel that way anymore. You don't want to feel patronised, if that makes sense. You don't want to feel like you're, you know, you should be nursed, you know. So yeah, yeah. And so, um, and I don't think that's right. I think that you know there are a lot of creatives out there who are not working, who are older creatives, whose wisdom and intelligence. And intellect is invaluable, and I think that we're, the business is missing a game by not employing these people. If you see what I mean, but I think yeah. if when you get to that stage, there are decisions that you need to make about how you want to feel and how you want to be seen. And I very much felt right. You know what? I'm moving into a different field now. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to work for another company, and I want to get to the point where essentially. I'm adding value to the culture, and I'm creating my own things. And if that means that people look on me as an authority in a certain place, you know, or what I'm doing, then then so be it. And that's where I want to kind of get to. You know, every day I'm I'm kind of getting a little bit further up the ladder to to, to achieving that. What advice would you give to someone that's just starting out in this industry? Well, number one, you know, follow your heart, but also you've got to want to. Eat, sleep, live, design. Do you see what I mean? Or because it's not one of those careers that you. It's not a nine to five job. Yeah. So it's that's the first thing. It's not nine to five. You know. So you've got to have a a work ethic and a passion for doing it that is kind of immeasurably you know strong. So I think you've got to have that if you want to succeed in the business because you've got to create. That thing that makes you stand out. The other thing I'd say is, getting a job is not the be all and end all. Obviously, and that you know, it can be difficult getting that first job. But the point is, we are in this world where, essentially, clients more and more are either bringing services in house or they're working with even large agencies on a project by project basis. So essentially there are there to some degree there are opportunities for independents to kind of gain jobs by talking directly to clients. So so the other thing that I'd say is don't always think about the big clients. In other words Everyone thinks, oh, yeah, I'd love to do something for Nike. I'd love to do something for Levi's. I'd love to do something for Apple. Well, those companies are well catered for. They earn mega, mega millions, billions, etc. Come down a bit, and you'll still find brands that may not have quite the same kudos, but are still still have sizable budgets that would, you know, more than pay your wages, if you see what I mean, for working with them. You know, why not help somebody become the next Apple? Why not help somebody become the next Nike? Why not help, do you see what I mean? So, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. think about that. You know, think about the fact that, in a way, nobody, you know, if you're a creative person, I didn't go into graphics to become somebody that was then going to have to always take my work to a creative director for him to say, yes, well done, you've got a good job. You do it because you want to prove yourself, you know, and you want to say that I I know what I'm doing and I'm the... So, great, learn from the best people that you can, take on board, but make sure you still also have this conviction about your own what you want to do and what is your own voice do you see what I mean and kind of I think just listen to that do you see what I mean I think because that will that will sort of drive you because I think you've got to have that you've got to have that conviction to want to do it your way if you see what I mean because if you don't have that then you end up producing work that never 100% you feel is yours if you see it I mean there's always it's always maybe been co-opted or something else that has come through but in a way that's why I've always said when you're lucky to be working and that pays the bills then there's and as tough as it is that's when you can also go right and I'm going to produce this one thing for myself because 
the mortgage is being paid so that's the best time to also be doing other projects where you can you know because like I say you, you're able to pay the bills so you might as well do a project for yourself do something that you can while you can do that when you're not getting money and you can't pay the bills then you know you're in a different environment but even then I'd still say follow your heart because when you go to see somebody about that job you got to feel like you are a moving train do you see what I mean getting on a moving train is far you know far more exciting and far more appealing than than something that's stuck in a station do you see what I'm saying so yeah. So, you know, when you're doing things, when you're creating things, even if you haven't got a job, you've got things to talk about, you've got ideas, so therefore you naturally come over in a interview or a one-on-one situation as somebody who is, you know, who is doing things, do you see what I mean? So you can't lose, you know, so if you haven't got a job, just get out there, you know, also just use the fact that you're creating momentum and you're creating movement you know call somebody you know that moment when you're calling somebody to say would you do this project and you're waiting for them to get back to you when you're talking to somebody else you're able to say yeah yeah i'm talking to such and such about doing a and that's you know you're not lying whether they've said to you no we're not going to do it with you or not it's in, it's those moments in between where you could actually capitalize and maybe move yourself further forward than you thought possible now this might be a, a silly question but if you weren't doing design what do you think you would be doing because it sounds like it's such an just an integral part of, of who you are yeah it, it absolutely is so therefore i don't know what i'd be doing because i've wanted to do well i wouldn't say i knew i wanted to be a designer from an early age but i knew i wanted to do art from a very early age so from mm-hmm. primary school i basically went yeah yeah that's it i want you know from the age of say seven or eight i had a pretty strong idea of i'm doing something related to art and then by the time i got to say 14 15 i knew i wanted to do art but i knew but i didn't want to be an artist and then this teacher my art teacher said these two words that i'll never forget so actually we might but you might we might be coming round actually in a strange way to your previous question about who's okay. given you the most useful advice <laughs> and i'd say it's mrs compton who was my um, art teacher at secondary school when i was um 15 and i said i i love art but i don't want to necessarily be an artist and she said you want to be a commercial artist i'd never heard that term before commercial artist uh-huh. and it's still almost the most beautiful words that I could think of <laughs> because it set me on this whole path to you know seeing graphic design and and all these other disciplines that would be termed as commercial art and I think that's what it is I've always wanted to be a commercial artist I wanted to make my living doing the sort of things that I that I love and yeah and, and that's why I I've been doing and I don't think there's anything else I could have done <laughs> are there any designers or artists out there that you admire oh there's, there's I can give you probably a bible, <laughs> a bible <laughs> of them you know so it'd be an encyclopedia you know you've interviewed one of them Emery Douglas you know is one of my favorite favorite artists I mean people that have inspired me Philippe Stark I love the work of Philippe Stark because he's he's a he's a creative you know i love that kind of an idea draw it on a fag packet and then basically get people to make it and come on board with the vision and you know and and i like that that's the sort of creativity that i like i I think it's always always about ideas so just to i mean wrap up this interview where do you where can our audience find you online well my website which is www.john that's j-o-n hyphen daniel d-a-n-i-e-l dot com so that's john hyphen daniel dot com that's where you'll find i guess an overview of the lot of you know a lot of my work and a lot of my projects and my experience you know and the different things i've i've been involved in from advertising through to branding and design and and now my own cultural cultural projects is there a link to Visual Intellectual from there? Um, yeah, yeah, there's definitely. So, yeah, you can go to the blog as well, visual-intellectual.com. 
and that's where I put a lot of my thoughts and also I publish the um, I republish the column Four Corners that I do with um, Design Week Okay. And you can also, if you put go into Design Week and just type John Daniel, then you'll you'll find all of those articles on the designweek.co.uk site. Sounds good, John Daniel. Man, this has been an awesome, awesome interview. Just so much. I'm buzzing. Like there's just so much good information and just learning about what you're doing and your story and the exhibit and everything. I think people are really going to take a lot. From this, I'm, I mean, I personally am taking a lot from this. So I think that people listening definitely will. So thank you so much for taking time out for this. I really do appreciate it. Oh, Morris, it's been a real honor. And I just wanted to say thank you as well to the work you're doing as well with Revision Path. I think it's really, really valuable. So, you know, you're doing a great job in representing and, you know, long may it continue. So well done. I'd love to see, you know, I, love, I look forward to meeting in the future. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you take care. Thanks again for the interview. All right. All the best. And that's it for this week. That was a really, really great interview with John. I hope you got some inspiration from it. Big thanks to John Daniel, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors, MailChimp and Audible. MailChimp has you covered when it comes to email marketing. Start for free today at MailChimp.com and turbocharge your email marketing. And, you know, speaking of email marketing, our August newsletter hits inboxes on Friday. So make sure to go to revisionpath.com and sign up to make sure that you are on our list. After that, head to audibletrial.com forward slash revisionpath and get a 30-day free trial plus a free audiobook of your choice from their library of over 150,000 books. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like what we're doing with the podcast and the website, then show your support. Visit tugboatyards.com forward slash page forward slash revision path and donate today. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.